Welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. This week's guest is musician Grayson Yu. Back in 1989, Grayson had a big hit with the song Talk It Over, and in 1992, his second major label album, Road to Freedom, was named one of Billboard magazine's top 10 albums of the year. He was dubbed the King of Blue-Eyed Soul. He was on the fast track to stardom. Unfortunately, the uh, dirty side of the record industry got in the way, and it really affected Grayson both financially and personally, and he hit rock bottom. Since then, he's rebounded. He tells the story. It's a fascinating story. I've been a big fan of Grayson since back in 1989. I had a, cassettes of his both albums. We kind of joke about you know having cassettes now these days. And here's my interview with Grayson. And helping me relive my youth today is Grayson Yu. Grayson, thanks for joining us. Nice being with you, Noel. Yeah, so I'm going to start, you know, let's go way, way, way back. Uh, your family came from a musical background, correct? Yes, they did. Uh, my dad uh, studied uh, viola at, uh, in London as a little boy. Mom uh, got a vocal scholarship to uh, Oberlin College. She didn't really pursue it, but uh, I have a lot of other musical relatives, and it's definitely in the family. Yeah. So how did you um, guys land in Connecticut? Uh, well, that's a good question. My dad came over from uh, London uh, down through Canada right before World War II. He was a teenager, went to high school, met my mother eventually after we got out of the Merchant Marine. Uh, I think it was the last year of the war. Uh, met my mom, who had come from China and was a social worker and I think director of admissions at Hillier College, which is now University of Hartford. And they started dating, and the rest is history. And uh, it was in Connecticut, and that's why I'm in Connecticut. Well, I should say that's why I'm, one of the reasons I'm back in Connecticut. I was away for many years. Right. So where um, where in Connecticut are you now? Right now we're in western Connecticut, in Danbury, Connecticut. Oh, yeah, it's, My wife and I. Yeah, beautiful area right next to the border of New York. Yes, it is. It's right next to New York, and then a lot of nice, a lot of nice nature. Yeah, definitely. I know that's kind of inspires you in your songwriting as well. Yes, it does. Yeah. So you kind of, I mean, the way you got discovered, it's kind of like something be written in a, a movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. I was discovered in an elevator. I mean, I've told this story so many times, uh, but it really is true. I, you know, in about 1986, I had sort of had it with being a, a, a in, in the vocal band scene, and I... I said, i I got to get a record deal. And I thought about it and said, what city should I go to? It's a toss-up between New York or Los Angeles. And I'm not a country, so it's not Nashville. And I can't afford to go over to London. That's a whole crazy thing. But so I said, you know what? New York seems the most logical place. And I just pounded on doors the old-fashioned way. And finally, I always tried to meet people. I had friends and knew people that, asked me to record with them and jazz and stuff and all kinds of music. And after about <clears throat> six months of pounding on doors and getting nowhere, I was in the elevator of my manager's uh, house. And I was going down, and there was this guy that was going up to see his girlfriend in the same building, on the Upper East Side. And he saw me carrying a synth case, and he said, oh, you're a musician, right? I said, yeah, obviously. 
And he said, I'm a producer. I just produced the Blow Monkeys over in England. And I said, oh, I had just seen the thing on MTV, the, you know, a bunch of white boys, British guys, you know, loving black music. And it was kind of cool. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I, I know who those people are. And I said, would you like to hear some of my music? And he said, yeah, sure. So he forgot. Already, you know, would be late for that appointment. And we went up to my manager's apartment. And I played him some songs. And he said, he pointed to his arms and said, I, what is that? He said, that's goose flesh. Now, can you prove that that's actually you? Because I don't believe that's you. And I played and sang live in the, in the apartment, and he was, you know, blown away. Apparently, later I heard he said to his girlfriend, I just found the next Buddy Holly. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, what he, that's the quote from him that he gave to me. But, you know, and then from there, uh, I mean, that's, it's the elevator story, really. It really happened. And it's just by being in the right place at the right time. It's that uh, synchronicity that Carl Jung talks about, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, you've told that story so many times. Do you, like, yeah, still yeah, like, believe I, it's I, true? I try to vary it, but it's, it's hard to. It's sort of, a, it is what it is, you know? Yeah, do you, like, yeah. after telling it so many times, do you actually believe it's true? <laughs> well, I know it's true. Right. It <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Well, I, yeah, I, I know my wife gets tired of hearing it, and my brothers. Right, yeah. <laughs> they roll their eyes. Oh, come up with a different story, would you? <laughs> well, that's, that's the way I got discovered, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I was uh, 13 years old when uh, Blind Trees and the, the, the album came, or I, I had it on cassette, so I'll, I'll date oh, myself okay. right there. Yeah. And, um, you know, talk it over. I, like uh, the producer, I didn't believe you were white. When yeah, I first a people, heard, yeah, a lot of people thought that, and I was, I was black. But, yeah, it was. I was surprised, but you know, I grew up on that kind of music, on black and soul music, and um, plus, I played in a, in a in a black gospel church my late teens for a couple of years, and I mean, I really absorbed it, and I'm that's why they call it blue-eyed soul, you know, uh, I guess. Right. Yeah, and you you got dubbed you know the king of blue-eyed soul, I guess. Well. I love it, but you know, I, I like all kinds of music too. Noel, I, uh, an American record that I co-produced with my wife, right. Molly Messer, uh, in 2010, um, is it goes all over the, the the genre map. It touches a little bluegrass, folk, jazz, funk, soul, rock. You know, uh, North Ohio, a real sensitive song about uh, going out to my grandmother's grave. I mean, you know. It's, I just had a lot of songs I needed to get out. Blue White, a 10-minute long song, an ode to snow. You know, I just didn't care when I made that record. I wanted to get some songs out that were meant a lot to me. And, yeah, I'm going to get to that album in, in a little bit. Sure. But, um, talk, you know, to talk it over, uh, originally was Living Newton-John released it, so how, how did that kind of fall into your lap again? Well, no, actually, that's not true. Here okay. is what happened. Okay. I, I have to explain this a lot to many times to people. What happened is I was, when I first moved, it was in, I sort of half lived in Connecticut. Right. Half lived in a basement apartment in Manhattan. I was, in the daytime, I was accompanying for modern dance classes at Princeton in New Jersey and also at Sarah Lawrence in Bronxville, New York, because I've always been able to do that. That's what I did for many years as, to make money. Um, in the process, uh, my an old friend, actually an old girlfriend, that the only person I knew in New York, 
who knew a lot of people, uh, agreed to be my manager. And a friend of her husband's was Sandy Linzer, who's a guy that lives in Livingston, New Jersey. He's, I think, in his 70s now. But he had written a lot of hits with the Four Seasons, uh, Work My Way Back to You, Babe, uh, Lover's Concerto, The Toys, you know, from right. way back in the 60s. And he was wanted to meet me and maybe do some writing with me. So we would get together, and uh, we did some you know, writing together, but I, nothing came of it. Then I really wanted to get, put the spotlight on myself, and I said, look, Sandy, I want to, you know, I want to do, I want to get a, a, a demo reel together. I already have some of my songs, uh, and he played me. He said, listen, I have a bunch of songs that you might like. And he went through and bought out little cassette tapes and played me a bunch of songs. And after about five, the sixth one was talking over. And it was literally his voice, which was not good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's not a singer. Right. It playing a very sort of fast version on a tabletop synthesizer. Nothing else with, with not even a microphone, you know, just into a, uh, you know, a, a speaker of a tape recorder. And I, I said, stop. He said, yeah, that song was rejected by Smokey Robinson. And I, I mean, I heard immediately how it should be um, because it had, you know, I heard the background vocals and basically would start with the background vocals. And I, I just said, look, can I take that home and rearrange it? And uh, he said, yes, absolutely. And uh, so that was what we did and we recorded it. And it became one of my songs. Of course, I perhaps I should have asked for songwriting credit. I was young and naive. Right. Um, since I always wrote my own songs, I just figured, well, you know, I arranged it. That's good enough. Um, and it became one of the songs that RCA just loved because they said I sounded like Sam Cooke. And this is, you know, fantastic. A white guy that sounds black like this. And, um, you know... It's one of the songs that got me signed to RCA. But, you know, they also liked my other you know, songs that I had written. Anyway, so we, I got signed to RCA, and then we recorded uh, the album. And uh, my arrangement of Talk It Over, and since I had since lost touch with Sandy Linzer, and, of course, was going to give him songwriting credit, you know, I'm very ethical on the album, uh, didn't think of doing anything else. We were going to release that. RCA wanted to release that as my first single in 1988. Suddenly they get a call from Sandy Linger's lawyer saying, Grayson had nothing to do with that song whatsoever. He, he was never even in the room. I mean, basically lying. Wow. I actually breathed life into the song. It would have sat in his closet for forever if I had not heard the potential written an arrangement, changed chords, changed the key, changed the tempo, wrote a detailed note for note, an actual orchestral arrangement of the song. So then what happened is he went to the publisher that had just signed me, Charles Koppelman. They, they, had, they were, uh, I forget uh, the name of, the, of his company. It, he eventually sold it to uh, EMI. But he was raving about how what a great songwriter I was. Just signed with Charles Compliment's company as a publisher. Sandy went behind my back and said to Charles Compliment, look, I want to write a first release. That sounds so good. Basically, he heard my version, and he said, I'm going to steal it. And he gave it to He tried to get a hit with Olivia Newton-John. 
and I was at RCA. We, we legally, for some reason, had no recourse. I don't know why that was, but he, he was able to do it. And RCA said, "Well, look, we'll let hers. It's it's not it's 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 sappy. No one will even hear it. And I really, to this day, a handful of people." Like yourself, I've heard it. A lot of people don't even know she ever recorded it. She recorded my arrangement. It was basically my song. Um, what happened is that her version died on the charts, and then we released a, a single, Tears of Love, which I had a great time video, videoing out in Big Sur, and then we released Talk It Over, and that went through the roof. And I had a huge hit with it all around the world. So that, I felt vindicated. You know, but actually, that's that's the correct story of Talk It Over.
Okay, so Talk It Over was a huge hit. I mean, you you know played all, all the uh, shows and everything like that. I saw a clip on YouTube with uh, Ryan Gumbel. <laughs> oh, yeah, Today's Show, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, bring, it all, bring It All Back, another tremendous yeah. hit on there. Yeah. Uh, the, I think your second album, Road to Freedom, might have been even better than your first. The duet with Betty Wright. Oh, of course, yeah. How they tacked that on in the second pressing. Right. Because the, the director, Nancy Savica, uh, the director of the film True Love, wanted me to sing a, a remake of Champagne's How About Us. And so we called up Betty Wright, made a duet of it, and filmed a video down in New Orleans. That, that also became a, a R&B hit and a pop hit. Yeah, it's totally. I mean, there are so many other, you know great songs on on, on oh, that. You. you know, I, I could say album cassette because I had the cassette. You know, records. <laughs> yeah, albums. exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll date myself totally. Exactly. Yeah, and then you know, you know, Road to Freedom came out. Also, I can date myself. Had the cassette as that as as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are so many good songs on there as well. Um, Thank you. What's kind of the inspiration for uh, Soul Cat Girl? That's a good question. Well, Soul Cat Girl. You know, I've always written poetry and. Uh, there was a girl that I was going out with at, actually it was after I had done Road to Freedom, but I guess I was still holding a bit of a torch for her, and, uh, um, I wrote the song, uh, and I was thinking of someone looking at the moon. I, she was on the West Coast, I was on the East Coast. She was in San Francisco, I was in New York. And I just thought of the image of both of us looking at the same moon. You know, it's not a terribly original idea, but what I did is I wrote about the nature of when I was out there in San Francisco and going up to Monterey and the incredibly beautiful uh, surroundings, the, the surf, you know, the sound of the waves, the, the smell of the air, and I, all of that I put into, you know, uh, the imagery of Soul Cat Girl. It's basically a poem that I crafted into a song. And, and you know, it's funny, my, one of my producers, Michael Baker, would come in and, and say, I gotta get my Soul Cat Girl fixed, and he'd make Axel Kroll, or the other producer, play it. <laughs> it was his favorite song. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful, and here is Soul Cat Thank Girl. You. Thank you.
Okay, and that was Soul Cat Girl. Um, there's one, because so many other good songs. Another one I want to bring up, especially because we're recording this interview on, I can't believe it's already the 16th anniversary of yeah. 9-11. Hard to believe. Yeah, you know, and it's, uh, we'll never forget all the heroes we lost that day and all the people, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a very uh, inspirational day. Um, the song For the Innocent, uh, when you told me about the story of that song, it's it's an amazing story. Can you just uh, tell the listeners about it? Yes, uh, no. Uh, well, my grandfather was a, a, uh, a missionary in China, and that's where my mother was born, in Shanghai. And in 19, August 1937, he was conducting some business. He had to go into the city. And he, they, he was warned, uh, the Japanese planes are around, uh, and also Japanese boats were circling the harbor. They eventually, you know, invaded China. But in 37, it was just sort of starting. He was warned, don't go downtown, stay in your house. My grandfather was a good, good man. He had some, somebody needed something. He said, I'm going to go and you know, deliver whatever it needed to be delivered, attend to business. And he, my grandmother and my mother, who was uh, 12 at the time, said, okay, we're going to go with you then. He, they went in, and they basically had a bomb dropped from a Chinese plane by accident on into its own city. It was an accident. It was friendly fire. Uh, so one of the Chinese planes released a bomb right into Shanghai, and many people were killed, including my grandfather, right in front of my, my mother, 12 years old, and my grandmother. And at the same time, my mother, I, you know, she, it was traumatic. She said at the same time, it was all like slow motion to her. Someone was trying to rob, to rob their car. Oh, my God. Yeah. And my mom at 12, you know, was all unfolding in slow motion. She's, now I'll never forget, she, she held, my, my, here's, here's her father with his chest blown open. Sorry, but that's what happened. And he was killed instantly. When it was sinking in, she grabbed onto a street light and just yelled, God, help me. And she felt this calm come over her. And she was able to help her mother get my grandfather's body into the car to chase away the person that was trying to steal their car. And they drove him to the morgue. And I get chills right now just remembering the story. But she never forgot it. And she always would say, you know, it doesn't matter who does what to who. War is hell. And... Uh, Boy, it sure is, and I, you know, that I would always think about that story. And I, though I never met my grandfather, Noel, he was born in Bath, England. When I went there, I had had a dream, and it was uncanny. When we went around, went around the corner, uh, I had been there in a dream. So there, we had a real connection. I'm convinced, a spiritual connection. Wow, and a, a, tr a true hero, I would imagine. Well, he was. He was one of the best known uh, white men in China of the day. He was a he believed in not shoving Christianity down throats of people who weren't didn't happen to be Chinese. Didn't excuse me. Didn't happen to be Christian. He was he cared about people. You know, like um, he saw all the uh, prostitutes dying of venereal disease. Well, he had a paper called the Chinese Recorder, and he edited uh, that paper and he wrote an editorial saying 
we should legalize prostitution. There, that, and that way they'll get medical care and won't die. You save the body first. And the church kicked him out for stuff like that because he cared about human beings. So I always loved him, even though I'd never met him, and dedicated this song because war is so stupid. You, it never solves anything. It just creates more. So it's not only for him. I dedicate it to all the countless innocent lives lost at war.
So, you unfortunately um, were a victim of the awful record business. Yes, last night's really that unique. I mean, so was John Fogarty. So was a lot. So were a lot right. of other people. Uh, but yeah, you know, when it happens to you, when people lie to you, lie looking at you straight in the eye and lie to you, um, it hurts your feelings. You know, you 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 really kind of go off and lick your wounds. And uh, what happened is that when uh, MCA, when the MCA Road to Freedom album came out, um, MCA had said, we're going to push you. You're the best thing since sliced bread. And, you know, paid a lot of money to get me from RCA. I was convinced it was going to really, they would support the record and support a tour like RCA had done. Not to happen. It was not to be. They just totally lied they said they had, uh, for instance, VH1 wanted me to be Artist of the Month. I remember those. Huh? Yeah, and uh, I said, great, and we're going to give them Soul Cat Girl. They paid. I picked Sam Bear to, to video, the guy that had just done Smells Like Teen. Yeah, Nirvana, yeah. But I just liked his style. I wanted something different, you know, and he I did a great job. But after uh, VH1, uh, you know, asked me to be Artist of the Month, I think it would have ended up being... January uh, Uh they called my management saying, hey, where's our video? We, and then the MCA said, oh, we, we told my management, oh, we, we gave it to them. I mean, I, and they go, what, what, did it get lost in the street? <laughs> they did not deliver it. And then, uh, you know, things just fell apart in like five minutes. Suddenly I heard that the guy that had signed me, my actual A&R man, Paul Atkinson, who happened also to be the ex- lead guitarist of the Zombies. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, God bless him, he's no longer with us. But he was fired. I heard about this through my business manager, and that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, can of worms. 
But my so-called business manager called me up and said, hey, I just read in The Hollywood Reporter that Paul Atkinson was fired from MCA. What does that mean about you? And shortly after that, you know, no phone call from anybody. Wow. No, nothing. After being, you know, you know, seduced by penthouse dinners with white glove butlered service and promised the world, they just totally dropped the ball. And my business manage, management company just took their fees and never, never gave me good advice about anything. You know, like put some money away. You know, for the one time in my life I ever actually had some money. Right. You know, you know they could have said invest it, but well, no, they just take your money. And then they didn't even, they got me into an untenable situation with the IRS. And I eventually had to go bankrupt in 1999. And I put their bills along with it for expunged bills. <laughs> but I mean, it was a nightmare. And I moved uh, away from the world. I just hit. And I was in a kind of dysfunctional relationship with a girl, this fan. And, you know, it was just, uh, I wanted to be a different, I just didn't want to have anything to do with. Um, you know the music business, so that's what happened. With MCA. Yeah, because uh, after you know, "Road to Freedom" came out, it was you know one of the best albums of uh, yeah ninety two. Yeah, the top ten albums of nineteen ninety two. Yeah, the next year. Yeah, I, I go to college, and you know, I, I bring my cassettes, of course. Um, you know, and then you know, after a couple of years, I'm like waiting for the next album yeah. to come out, and right. I don't hear anything. And that was you know bef right before the internet. You know, really, you know, started taking off. So right. I, I heard uh, talk it over on uh, satellite radio, say about a year ago, yeah. and I'm like, oh wow, you know, I haven't just haven't you know really thought about you know Grace and you for a while. Yeah. So you know, I do the research, and I'm like, this unbelievable story about you know the, the gap between yeah. Blind to Reason and then when American Record came out. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of stuff. A lot of, lot of journey. A lot of stuff happened between the, in those years. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm 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 glad that you know you landed on your feet again and yes, uh, you me know. Too, yeah, I I, I, <laughs> I bet. But um, right. it's an amazing story how you were working in a McDonald's, correct? I was well. Here's what happened. I, I crashed and burned in 2004. I eventually from North Carolina moved back up north, and I got a job. They asked me to teach songwriting at Berkeley in Boston. I stayed at one of my oldest friends. I didn't have any much money at the time. And God bless him, he and his wife said, uh, you can stay on our third floor in Newton, Mass. And I stayed there for about five years, hmm. five or six years, and uh, I taught at Berkeley. But, uh, you know, I I had had a problem with drinking, and I, I thought I'd quit. I thought I'd quit way back in 1980. But, you know, I went to one... You know, I, I didn't really uh, seek help. Let's let me put it that way. And then, uh, twenty years later, or ten years later, pardon me, no, twenty years later, in two thousand, um, you know, I'm sort of unhappy. I feel empty. There's a hole. I feel unfulfilled, I'm, and I don't know what to do. And I just, I was kind of a mess. You know, I, I didn't wasn't meeting any any women that were interesting, and, except ones that were way too young, you know, like my students, which is right. just crazy. And so I just, and then my mom got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which was, is a death sentence at yeah. this age. And we were always very close, you know, my parents, both of them. Um, 
And I just was miserable. I was sad, and I just was very... I had never really recovered from being kicked in the teeth by these liars in the music business. Um, and I, I picked up a drink again, and I also was abusing a prescription, you know, a bit of uh, medication. And um, I went for a run with that. I got fired from Berkeley. And, you know, uh, like any good alcoholic, wound up homeless, you know, uh, living in a, uh, well, it wasn't homeless. For a while, I played in a bar in Falmouth. That's what the song Thank You, Lord, is about. Okay. Put on Back to the Soul. But, uh, you know, my my bottom was playing above a bar room for, for my, my uh, dinner. I went from the top of the music world, literally, you know, the top. Right. To the absolute bottom of, of existence. Broke, uh, you know, and uh, I had a seizure. They, had, they came and got me, took me to the hospital. And uh, I wound up. I always think that this is God uh, putting people in your path. I wound up in a detox. And then from there, a bed opened up in a sober house. And I, in Wareham, Massachusetts. And I, that's where I lived the next three years putting my, not only my life, but my sobriety and myself, my spiritual self back together. And I just kind of, music took a back seat. I mean, I still, you know, handled my music and thought about it, but I just said, look, I gotta do work on myself. And that's what I did for three years. And I needed a job to pay the rent at the Silver House. And uh, I got a job at McDonald's, minimum wage, working with teenagers. And you know what? It was one of the best things I ever did because I showed up, actually showed up at 7 a.m. every morning for two and a half years. And it was stupid work. It was ridiculous and often quite embarrassing. Sometimes I'd hear myself on the radio and not say anything. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, but I mean, I did it. I did right. it happily, happily. Absolutely. my Because I got, you know what? I got my brothers back. My brothers who had said, I can't take you in. They, they showed the tough love, you know. God, right. Thank God they did, because I needed to crash and burn. And then um, there's a whole other part of the story, because my other angel, who is my wife, uh, contacted me in, a, I think it was the third year I was living in the sober house, sent me a card. <laughs> and because it was a funny card of a magician that kind of looked like me. Okay. I said, wow, that's so funny. It was like an old sort of vintage shop, you know, card. And she's, I think it was, she's, she said, I had to send this to you. She, Polly Messer, she was with the A to the bar. She had been married to my very good friend, Ron Scalise, that I was telling you about. Right. He produced my first independent record in 1980 and A to the Bar's Live at Toes Place record in 1981, I think. And anyway... So I, we were friends. She also, after she left Eight to the Bar, she had sung with me in the mid-'80s. Um, a good old friend, you know, and she sends me this card, and wow, we struck up a phone conversation, and I asked her to, uh, she said, listen, I want to sing on the record. She heard that I was doing a new record for my drummer. Uh, and uh, I said, Polly, i got to be honest with you. I'm going to do all the harmonies. I barely got enough money. Uh, somebody had raised some money for me, you know, and I said, I barely have enough to cover the three other musicians. And she said, I'll sing for free. So what am I going to say to that? Of course. <laughs> the best singers around, 
my good old friend, you know, who, who I loved, you know, we always were great friends. Hadn't seen in a long time. But what happened is I did Rhythm Tracks in uh, the summer of 2006. I sent her a bunch of tapes, and then I, we started doing overdubs in Hartford at my guitar player's house. And when she walked in in January of 2007, doing her vocal overdubs, I tell you, my soul recognized her. When she walked up the stairs and came into the room, oh my God, and she, plus she was wearing Shalimar. <laughs> <laughs> she had stopped and gotten some extra, she told me later, at the mall. And I, she was so beautiful, and what a singer. I mean, she could sound like, you know, she can do anything. Um, and one harmony little, literally led to another. I kept adding her on more and more songs. And we'd have dinner, you know, a big meal with everybody afterwards. And she started giving me rides to my brothers and my father's where I was staying. And then I'd get a bus back to, you know, the Cape Cod where I was in the sober house. And then I finally, uh, you got to, look, this is ridiculous. Why don't you just stay with me at Damper, you know? <laughs> so, you know, that's the story. But she's the other angel that in my life. And I tell you what, I can, I can, uh, I just uh, am grateful for for her and uh, for my life. You know, what can I tell you? And that's why I wrote that song. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, that's... that's Not amazing. to mention Already in Love with You that I wrote for her. Uh, that's also on Back to the Soul. Fading as the days turned into seasons 
journey had begun I needed every stumble Drink and failure Everyone And I never want to go back To those days when I So finally, um, after probably you know a couple of years of putting songs together, uh, American Record gets released, uh, and uh, your own record label. So you have the creative freedom to put what songs and what gets released first. Right. Just, just talk a little bit about you know that amazing album. Well, you know, it, it, here's here's kind of what was happening. Um, it had its beginnings um, in this sober house where I am, Massachusetts. One of the guys, you know, we, it was 15 uh, men who were trying to get their lives back together, you know, stay sober. And you meet some interesting people. And there was one guy that would go to the library and he'd bring back sheets of stuff about me. He said, Grace, do you know that all people, there's a lot of stuff, pages and pages on the Internet. I said, I, I didn't know what, I didn't know the Internet, you know. I mean, I, I had email at Berkeley, that's about it. And so he printed out all this stuff and then, you know, literally about 40 pages. People go, what happened to Grace and Hugh? Blah, 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 you know. And I'm going, holy mackerel. Um, I should really do something about this. At around the same time, there was a, a substance abuse uh, counselor that happened to be with the Massachusetts uh, Rehabilitation Commission, a state-funded organization. He was a higher-up counselor in that uh, uh, agency, and he said, listen, you first I was going to maybe, uh, when I left, I was going to be a substance abuse counselor. I didn't know what else I wanted to do with my life. Um, I loved music, and I knew I'd do it, but I needed to make, I needed to have a job. So I was going to pursue that. He said, look, this is great, but you'll, you'll be basically a glorified orderly. You're not going to make more than 12 13 bucks an hour. Why don't you, my agency has never done this, but why don't you do, first of all, I want you to autograph my CDs that I have. I know who you are because hmm. I was in a program of anonymity and he said I was happy to break it. And 
autograph his the CDs. He was a fan. And he said, I can get you some seed money to do what you do best, which is make a record. And I that's how it started. And God bless that guy, Dean Gilmore, from McCushnet, Massachusetts, was another angel that was put on my path. And... Um, you know, we became great friends. We'd go out to lunch. We'd trade books. And he even stored my equipment uh, in his shed <laughs> on his farm. And, um, you know, uh, so he got me to seed money. And I then called a lot of my A-listers, you know, guys that I knew from New York and that had played with me and then go on, went on to play with Springsteen and all these other people. And, you know, I said, hey, would you do me a... Would you would you would you help a brother out? You know, <laughs> do me a solid here, and I can't pay you a lot of money. He said, "No, can't do it." So I said, "Okay, who am I going to ask?" And I had great old friends from way way back that I've known from West Hartford, Connecticut. Way back, I've known known them since some of them since uh, elementary school, and I'd done the first record in 1980 independently uh, with these guys. They were in the Hartford area. Uh, guitar player Tom Ajeski, drummer Rob Gottfried, and bass player David Stoltz, who now plays with JMO and a lot of other people. But I um, called them and I said, guys, I literally have probably $600 I can give you a piece. Would you do these rhythm tracks? And basically, I thought I could do a record. Right. <laughs> this is the idea. Hmm. I'm going to do a record to one summer. Right. Well, that was still, that was 2006. Uh, four years later is when it was released. But at the time, I was so thrilled. They said yes. They were so glad I was sober. I, I would take buses to Hartford. Uh, you know, it was, it was like rejoining the world, though, you know. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, we did the recording, the uh, rhythm tracks in uh, a studio in uh, Concord, Massachusetts, called Wellspring Sound. And uh, some of them made it to the record. Others, like I redid, and I added songs. And of course, when Polly came in, she had such good ideas. I said, "You're going to co co-produce this record with me," and she would say, "Let's do this song." And I said, "Yeah, that's great." Um, so we kept on, you know, she kept on raising the bar. I would tend to settle because I wanted this thing to be finished. Right. And she said, no, no, don't do that song. It's so good. And so we'd figure out a way to, you know, do it. And uh, I also wanted to include my 10-minute uh, song, Blue White, which I wrote in 1978. Um, but it was an animal that just had, was fully formed when it was born. And it just, it, it, not, it's just, it's a timeless classic. It's kind of jazz. It's like a little bit like soul folk. There's a lot of poetry, but it was important to my heart, so we put that on there. And it, you know, it took it took as long as it took. We went into a lot of people's rooms with you know Pro Tools and went tried to mix it with some people and then threw it out. And I mean, oh my God, it was uh, it was a real project. It took four years and a lot of trains, planes, and you know, not planes, but great buses and cars and and uh, it was really a labor of love and I'm very very proud of it you should be proud of it and I'm going to play one of my favorite songs off that record Zoe on the T-Train alright
trail of a hungry G train Going around this cold harbor town As the October afternoon was falling We met up and started talking in the crowd And as the beat was shuffled to the rail beat We spoke to Georgia and mountains Secrets of wood and salts of light And ghosts in the fountains I call your name I call it loud like a sweet refrain I call your name I remember the day I went riding So be on the teeth
and there are so many great songs on uh, American Record, but uh, you know, I'm living in New England now, so I kind of know what the phrase Swamp Yankee is. But, um, right, right. Yeah, but uh, maybe you can explain it to the people who don't know. Right. Well, Swamp Yankee is, you know, for, first of all, I, I always sort of identify the Southern soul music. I have a lot of family down there in the Carolinas and uh, New Orleans, and, uh, or used to be in New Orleans, mostly in the Carolinas. But, and I lived there also. So I, I was thinking of, I was fooling around one day in my little uh, third floor home studio in Newton, Massachusetts uh, in like the late 90s. And I started doing this figure on, a, on the synth where I split the keyboard. I had a bass in the left hand and, and a, like a clavinetti on a rhythm guitar. And it was kind of James Brownie, you know, and uh, sort of like Sex Machine, but a little more complex. Hmm. And I said, wow, this is great. I've got to make a song for this. So I came up, I just came to me, Swamp Yankee. And I, I, I said, I'm going to talk about like an old codgers kind of guy that lives in Gloucester that hmm. is just, you know, kind of smells not too good. <laughs> he works on his boat and he's, you know, he's kind of grouchy and... Uh, but he's, he's the salt of the earth, you know? And then I got into, you know, well, he just, he, he's actually part Indian, he's part Pequot, you know? And uh, it just, you know, became a story that I wrote for fun, but it became a song that I really loved. And I said, wait a minute, I can really do this and add saxophones. And you know, it's funny, uh, the head of the arranging department, Berk Berkeley had a series in the summer for the five-week program for the kids from all over the world in, in Berkeley Performance Center. And he always, for at least three times, he said, Gratian, we got to do your song, Swamp Yankee. And we did. And we did very strange big band arrangements of it. But anyway, a Swamp Yankee is a, a sort of, that's what it is. It's, it came from the troops of Washington way, way back where they were fighting them right around where I live now at Danbury. And it's Danbury is basically a swamp, Reading, Danbury. And if you read the history books, the, the English troops disparagingly called the rebels, they're just a bunch of swamp Yankees. And that thing, that term had its origins way back in the Revolutionary War. And it sort of stuck around. And now it's, it's, it's known as kind of white trash, but good-natured white trash. It's that kind of self-deprecating humor that people have about each other, you know. But it happens to be a New England thing. So I just like the term, and I, I kept it. I named my publishing company, Swamp Yankee Music. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
That was a uh, swamp Yankee. So um, back back to the soul. Uh, didn't take as long to be released. Uh, That's correct. Yeah, an- another uh, fantastic uh, song. I, it was a lot of you know. It was f- more funky than you know the other ones. Which yes. yeah. I, well, I, I, you know what happened is that um, after American Record came out in two thousand ten, I started doing a lot of live shows. Didn't I? Didn't have a band, but I had Polly Messer who was like a horn player, a drummer, I mean, just by her singing. We make a lot of music for two people. With me on the grand piano and with Polly, we started doing shows uh, in Connecticut, you know, the the main theaters where they bring in name acts like Infinity Hall, uh, Catherine Epper, the Kate, 
industry, um, and we ventured out, and then we went overseas. A fan found me on Facebook and said he had also wondered what had happened to me, a guy named Jerry Porzadby. And he said, look, I want to bring you over, you and Polly, over to Poland. And he he was just a businessman with that was also a fan, and he put together a tour that we call the Acoustic Tour 2012. And um, so we did a lot of duo shows. Then I said, you know, I, I really would like also to have a band. I mean, I always had a band before. So I had, gone, I, I had heard in 2014 there was a guy that had been my bass player uh, in a band when I lived in Ocean Isle Beach, um, North Carolina. His name is Albert Rogers. He had played that he in the intervening years. He had played with Levon Helm hmm. uh, in 2000. He'll come up north, and then you know, play with a bunch of guys up in the Woodstock area. And I did. I had lost touch with them since '95. Anyway, he called me and said, "Look, Grayson, there's a guy down here that's the biggest Grayson Hugh fan in the world. His name is Jim Quick, and he's got a band, and I'm in it." And it's called Coastline, and we play the beach music route. And, I mean, they work like 380 days a year, hmm. you know. Uh, well, actually, they take maybe a month off. Right. There's a, it's a thing. If you know about beach music, it's a Carolina thing. It's like a very sub-genre. And people go out and dance and spend money and, you know, drink, you know. Hmm. But uh, anyway, he said, look, we... Jim wants to bring you down, and uh, finally got to talk to him. He called me and he said, "Look, I want to bring you down, you and Polly, and we, Mike Bam, will learn your songs, and you, we'll open up, and then the band will play your set. As you'll be the headliner." And it was crazy. It was like I, I, I was mobbed with people wanting my autograph. I mean, it was felt very good. That was 2014, and then I said, "Look, these guys are so good." I want to make another record. Well, I asked them to be the musicians. And then I, without Jim Quick, because he really, you know, he was the lead singer, so I mean, I'm going to be doing the lead singing. So he basically lent me his band to do, to be the studio band for Back to the Soul. And they did such a good job. I mean, uh, Cameron Dudley on drums, Casey Meyer on guitar. They, uh, he has that Steve Cropper, you know, uh, kind of thing. Sounds like B.B. King. Uh, Albert uh, Rogers on bass, Glenn Tippett on saxophones, and then me and, uh, on all the keyboards and Polly on all the uh, background vocals. We just had, had a great time. And we did it. I crowdfunded it. And literally quickly, I was finishing lyrics as we packed up and went down to uh, our rented house and North Carolina, and uh, did the thing, and all the rhythm tracks and a lot of the uh, overdubs in two weeks and like two days. Came up and finished the overdubs in in Hartford and mixed mixed and mastered it, and it was a lot quicker, a lot more efficient. And then you know I I'm learning how to take less time as I as I go. But it's a real return to my southern soul roots. You know, I wanted the grease, you know, I wanted the, the, the you know, the grease on the, uh, you know, that, that southern soul sliding guitar, you know, uh, guy 
guys like uh, Otis Redding, you know, uh, Arthur Connolly, Joe Tex, you know, Solomon Burke. And I played a lot of Hammond organ, that, that, that churchy Hammond organ. It had a nice grand piano, you know, real Wurlitzer, a real uh, Fender Rhodes. I even played some bongos in the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we had a great time, and, uh, you know, uh, it was totally crowdfunded. In fact, both records, Amer American Record and Back to the Soul, were, were crowdfunded. Yeah, and a lot of artists are doing that now, and I feel oh, like it's... To. Yeah, absolutely, and you know it brings them closer to their fans. Obviously, to be you know. absolutely, it does. It's a great way to, to to be close to your fans, and you have dialogue, and they you know it's interactive, and it, it's great. Yeah, so you um, obviously find then like being like you know on social media and like just you know the streaming sites, you find those yes. obviously beneficial to your career. Absolutely, God bless Facebook. I don't care what anyone says. It's you know free publicity. You can you can edit what you want. You don't have to. You can be as interactive as you want. But one of the things that I like to do on my my pages is when someone says I like your music, I always respond to that person, and I do it in emails and fan letters. I I, I grew up in that tradition of being nice to people, and you know it's just good manners. But not only that, these are the people that are you know, paying my living, right. buying my music, and I answer every single, but every single person. I don't have a wall of, you know, I never bought into that fame nonsense where, uh, you know, you're a celebrity. There's no such thing as celebrity. It's, it's, it's a fiction, you know, you were just, so I thank everybody, you know, and, and you know, I've got so some great comments, you know, like I helped them through a certain period in their lives or when their parents, one of their parents was dying and all sorts of things. One was having chemotherapy and played my music while she was going through it and said it helped her. I mean, it touches your heart. So you said, you know, you, you've, been, you've been touring. Where are some of the spots we can find you? Uh, we're going to be well, with my new band, Grace and Hugh and the Moonhawks. We will be at Daryl's house, Daryl's house club in Pauling, New York, on uh, Friday, January. Uh, let's see, January fifth, I believe. Okay. It'll be to my at GraceandHugh.net. Uh, I'm going to be. We're going to also be at Black Eyed Sally's, a roots music place uh, with some very good, you know, soul food in Hartford, Connecticut, on Saturday, December 9th. Uh, St. Patrick's, I'm just looking at the count of St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> I'm bringing the band up to a great venue in Plymouth, Mass, called uh, the Spire Center for Performing Arts. It's an old Methodist church, and they're going to have a nice grand piano for me, so that'll be a lot of fun. So, you know, it's all will be up on GracianHugh.net and all my Facebook pages as well. Yeah, I will, I will definitely make one of your shows. I can't wait to see you live. Yeah, and, I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, no and one. Grayson, thank you for a few minutes today, and best of luck. My pleasure talking with you. A special thanks to Grayson for joining us today. For more on Grayson, check out GraysonU.net. For more on me, follow me on Twitter at the first Noah19. Be sure to like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Uh, special thanks to everyone for listening. I can't do it without you guys. And we'll see you next time when we relive my youth.